Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Sarah Blackwell. My pronouns are she and her. I am a clinical specialist in PGY1 RPD at Princeton Baptist Medical Center, and I will be your host for today's episode. This is part two of the podcast, Therapeutic and Psychosocial Considerations for the Care of Gender Minorities. Joining me again today are Brayden Mischiolik and Caleb Cogswell from Transcend the Binary. So let's move into some pharmacotherapy. If a patient seeks to begin hormone treatment but is not on therapy, what's important to know? This is Braden. I know that we've already kind of woven into our, our discussion so far or past conversations around, you know, there's a lot of presenting ways that people can present. So I think that's that's really important. People might, might not present in a way that would conform to your expectations. Um, I know Caleb can speak more to the therapeutic components of this, but for me, kind of talking about this from more of a, a behavioral health lens, I think that, you know, there's a lot of a variety of presenting concerns that people may have. They, uh, some people would benefit from a therapist to gain support to navigate, um, such as like social transitioning or navigating work or family or peer groups. And of course, you know, youth is their own category that we'll talk about. Um, but it's really important that with these different like linkage to services and promoting like with Transcend the Binary, we educate on the benefits of therapy, but we do not believe that it should be uh, like a, a gatekeeping step in the process. We're huge on advocate, uh, educating on the benefits of therapy though, because there's a lot of social changes that will happen. And, you know, there's a lot that we found in our research in terms of like minority stress. So a lot of the difficulties and the barriers uh, relate to navigating the world around us and our own social location. And so linkage to therapists is really important, but equally, if not more important, or yeah, have equal weight to that, is that they're vetted gender affirming therapist. Um, what we look for with therapists are folks who are willing to accept feedback or continually looking to grow. And it's also really important too to be mindful of like intersectionality uh, because I, as someone who's a white person, my experience might be very different than individuals who have intersecting cultures of identity, different cultural groups and pockets and experiences. So I think that's really important to note and making sure that they're vetted. That would be what I would say. It's a multi, multidisciplinary suite of resources to provide individuals that are vetted for being gender affirming and willing to accept and work on feedback. And then in addition to that uh, cross-team multidisciplinary collaboration with mental health therapists and other types of support, um, if, if you're working, like if you're an AMCARE pharmacist or and you're working in an office that is not actually providing that pharmacotherapy for gender affirming care, um, having references for who in your area can you refer them out to that will be affirming. Um, it's, you know, I think it's kind of a, 
common misconception that, oh, I can just send this person to an endocrinologist and they'll have a good experience. That endocrinologist may be a great endocrinologist, but not be good at necessarily providing an affirming environment. So making sure that we're, we're vetting our medical professionals in addition to our mental health professionals that we're referring our patients to. And then I'm always, you know, depending on what your state's uh, allowances are and laws are, if your office doesn't do pharmacotherapy, if that's something you can add in. And if you as a pharmacist are able to get prescriptive authority in your state, even setting up a collaborative practice agreement in order to create another access point to affirming care is something that I'm a strong advocate for. Um, So that way, you know, you're instead of having to say, oh, we don't offer this service, but I can send you elsewhere. You can say, you know what, we don't offer the service, but we should. And I'm going to take those steps to help us get there. Yes, access is clearly the first step. Can you tell us more about the specific therapies? What are the basics of masculinizing therapy? Yeah, so great question. And both with uh, transmasculine therapy, transfeminine therapy, and then I'll touch a little bit on the on stuff for the youth as well. I'm going to go super basic on this um, because I could fill a two-hour content block just talking about this stuff. Um, but I do highly recommend for everyone, if you are interested in learning the doses, the ins and outs of all of this. Um, I love the University of California, San Francisco's guidelines. They actually have a trans center of excellence. Their guidelines are also wonderful, easily to reference, which is like 10 out of 10 on a guideline for me. Um, so highly recommend everyone check those out. Um, there are also guidelines from WPATH as well as the Endocrinology Society. So you can get a variety of different guidelines there. But these all, um, what I'm about to go over is covered in all three. They all hold the same information. Um, so to get back to that initial question of what are the basics of transmasculine therapy, transmasculine therapy is the easiest one. It's just testosterone. That's all we really care about with transmasculine therapy. Um, so patients will get started on testosterone. Typically patients will begin on injectable just because it is the cheapest of the versions. Um, and then we do see some patients using transdermal products as well. Uh, with this, uh, typically patients are going to be either be paying out of pocket or have had to go through a prior authorization process to get the transdermal products approved. So that's really where I'm just being able to know how to navigate that system, being able to help patients figure out, okay, this is what's going to be covered by your insurance. What's not is going to be a really good key helping point for pharmacists there. Um, as far as dosing goes, we actually follow the same thing we would do if it was a cis male coming in with low testosterone. So nothing fancy there. Um, patients will start, uh, they can start either weekly or every other week as far as their injection, um, intervals. And those doses will typically be, um, if we're looking at testosterone cypionate, that's typically going to be 100 milligrams weekly or 200 milligrams every other week. So again, it is exactly like we would see with a cis male coming in for low testosterone treatment. Um, We're actually looking for those same levels as well. We are typically aiming for that um, at least 400 to about a thousand as far as the testosterone levels um, go. And we actually do not have to care at all about estrogen levels in our transmasculine patients. So it is pretty straightforward when it comes to masculinizing therapy. Um, The goals that we are looking for, like I said, we do have that lab range of that 400 to 1000, but realistically our goals are is the patient seeing what they want out of their body. In my opinion, this is the coolest part about um, gender affirming pharmacy is that we get to say these labs, these are really just a suggestion. We don't actually care about those labs at the end of the day. We wanna look at a patient and say, are you seeing what you wanna see with your body? So as Braden mentioned earlier, some patients are not on hormones for long-term because that's not what they're looking for. Um, When I started my 
hormones. I was like, I only want to be on them for like six, seven months. I just want my voice to get a little bit lower. That was five years ago. And I'm still like, no, I never want to take my testosterone away now because of the other benefits I get with it. So that is how we're looking at the goals. You know, are we seeing these effects that we want? And specifically what we're looking for are those increase in those secondary sex characteristics that we typically associate with masculinity. So that facial and body hair development, um, typically a leaner body mass, we will be looking for genitalia growth or bottom growth is what the community typically calls it. And that's really important for patients who do want to have um, bottom surgery. So they want to have reassignment surgery as it just increases the tissue available and helps increase the success of those, um, of surgery. The other, uh, typical effects that we will see. Um, we'll also see that drop uh, decrease of the voice. Um, patients will see some increased sexual activity. Usually um, we may see other genital, cha genital changes like vaginal atrophy, um, some dryness, but those are things that we can treat topically. If patients do have issues with that, it is common for trans men to use um, uh, topically applied estrogen to help reduce discomfort with sex. Um, so just knowing kind of those ins and outs of those potential, you know, how would we treat this if it was a person who is cis coming in with this complaint? How would we treat that? It is going to be the same type of thing when it comes to these side effects. You can't see the air quotes I'm doing, but these side effects that may come up with transmasculine therapy. Overall, we typically see the benefits with um, hormones begin anywhere from one to three months is where we really start to see those beginning of changes. And then our kind of line in the sand that we say, Ooh, is this not enough? Is if we haven't seen the menstrual cycle stop by six months, that is like our non-lab based clinical picture of saying, Ooh, okay, we probably aren't getting enough androgenizing effects here. We need to change that dose. Or that's, you know, if they're within levels, but we're not seeing that go away, that would be our trigger point saying, okay, we've got up that dose there. Like I said, these typically will begin around one to three. We should see everything starting by six months with the context of genetics will play a key role here. I use myself as an example. I had a great mustache within probably two years of starting testosterone. Uh, five years, I have the saddest, most pathetic beard. I only recently found out that my dad did not start growing a beard until he was in like his late forties. So I know that no matter what, I've got probably 20 more years until I'm going to have a beard. So it's one of those things of, you know, we look to see these benefits, but it's going to be just like regular puberty. Genetics are going to play a huge role in there as far as the timeline goes. Okay. So on the flip side of that, let's talk about transfeminine therapy. Yeah. So transfeminine therapy, still very straightforward. Like I said, at the top of all of this, I think the pharmacotherapies is probably the easiest part of caring for our trans patients. It's all the other stuff, but transfeminine patients, it gets a little bit more complicated. So we are going to be using estradiol as our workhorse there for our hormones. Um, typically patients will start with oral and then sometimes go to injectable. Um, I know that there's been availability issues with injectable over the last few years. So we typically see more patients on oral. It's also dirt cheap. So insurance is like the oral. Um, our dose for that is most patients will start about two milligrams daily, and then we'll go up as necessary. Um, with trans feminine patients, not only do we have to provide the estrogen, we also have to blockade the testosterone that their body naturally produces. So with that, we're going to use... Um, an androgen blocker. Typically, spironolactone has been the main one we used in the past. So same scenario of increased thirst, increased urination, having to watch out for the renal function and all the fun drug interactions that can come there. Um, 
And then we can occasionally see deuteroside or finasteride being used. Those ones aren't going to be used as commonly since they don't actually interfere with testosterone production like spironolactone does. We oftentimes will see those added on, especially if a patient has already experienced balding prior to starting her estrogen. That's where we're really going to see those work since we do use those for balding. So another blocker that we are seeing some increased use with is bicalutamide, which is approved for prostate cancer. Um, there has been at least one study I haven't checked recently, but there was a study released a couple of years ago that specifically looked at bicalutamide as a puberty blocker in trans feminine youth. And they found that it had really good results. It um, had significant blockade, total blockade actually, as well as um, those patients started to see some breast development. So that is a huge advantage compared to just using spiro or deuteroside or finasteride that we can also get some feminization from that blocker. Um, so I'm hoping to see a little bit more um, research regarding that, especially as adult patients use it too. Um, the reason it's been avoided is because it had the liver toxicity associated with it, but that seems to be much more related to the prostate cancer use rather than the actual drug itself, given that the studies in the uh, teenagers did not have any rates of that. So then overall, the effects that we are looking for with feminizing therapy are going to be those increased uh, secondary sex characteristics. So if we're looking for breast development. Typically, we will um, see patients develop a uh, higher body fat percentage, as well as that fat will be deposited in areas that result in that curvy or more feminine appearance. So moving from like stomach fat to butt or hip fat, kind of getting that curvier sense there. Um, other effects that we can see are oftentimes the skin will become like softer, have a little bit more of a glow to it. So a lot of patients see that as one of the benefits from it. Um, unfortunately with feminizing therapy, it doesn't impact voice at all. It typically has limited impact on the, um, virilization of body and facial hair. So trans feminine patients, um, have to seek either laser hair removal or continue to shave or otherwise do hair removal throughout their life. So that is one of the downsides is we don't see these overcoming of these permanent effects that going through testosterone-based puberty did have. And then um, we do know that it does also um, decrease testicular volume and sperm production. So that is one of those uh, things to keep in mind of for some patients, it's a side effect. Some patients, it's a neutral thing. Other patients, it's a blessing. It kind of depends on where people are coming in at. Um, but we do start to see those reduction in functionality of the gonads when we start seeing uh, patients use estrogen therapy. Thank you so much. So what are the specific considerations for trans youth? I think it's important to, this is Braden, by the way. Uh, I think it's important to understand that, you know, it's going to look different. It can be at different ages and that it's really, the guidelines are a gradual process. Take it a day at a time, lean into exploring, lean into figuring things out. It's just like identity and we all develop and we all develop over the, the complete adult lifespan as well. So uh, just lean into that and take it a day at a time. Yeah, so to cover some more of the specifics of that, what the therapy actually looks like when we do have a youth patient come to us, um, keep in mind that by the time they are getting to us, they have gone through typically a psych evaluation of some type. They're usually in therapy at that point. So youth are not coming to us asking for, it's not like a, it's not like a kid coming to us to being like, I want a tattoo that they haven't thought about. They've been thinking about this. This is not a light decision that any kid is making, any family is making. So keeping that in mind. Um, but our goal with the pharmacotherapy side of gender-affirming care for youth is to give them that time to make that decision for themselves. 
Um, when we use puberty blockers, we know they are safe. They are approved in as young as two years old for central precocious puberty. So we know that they are safe in their use in kids. Um, all we're doing is helping kids say, you know what, I know that this body doesn't feel right to me. I would like to take the time to figure out what is right for me before I go through any permanent changes. So we use um, puberty blockers, specifically Luprolide or Hysterelian are going to be the two most commonly used ones. And they're nice and easy, they're injectables. Um, Luprolide is either gonna be monthly or every three months, just depending on which formulation is available or the doctor chooses at that time. And then Hysterelin is just a once yearly uh, subcutaneous implant. So as far as getting kids on medications go, pretty easy there. We don't have to be too worried about adherence but we get to give them that time. So we're just delaying puberty. We um, start these at Tanner stage two. So that would be the beginning of breast development and um, children assigned femi uh, female at birth or the beginning of testicular enlargement and children assigned male at birth. So we're intervening really young or not very young at an appropriate time, like 11, 12, 13, and then giving them that time to decide what is the next step. And then when they say, okay, I've made my decision, we get the choice of saying, okay, do you want to start hormones and we can go low and slow and keep you on the puberty blocker while we titrate you up slowly with your affirming hormones? Or we can say, you know what, you're feeling good. You want to just go headfirst into this. Let's do it. We can stop that puberty blocker and start them on. It's still lower doses. We do like the low end of adult dosing for youth and then slowly climb them up. Um, but we get the really fun opportunity to also then mimic regular puberty for when kids come to us and say, I know I don't want to go through the puberty my body's going to let me go through. Can we do it with exogenous hormones? We can say, heck yes. And we actually get to say, we can do this slow and let you match your friends and not have that othering that can occur. So it's, it is one of the easiest things in my mind to say, yes, this makes sense as an intervention. Let's give you that time to make that right choice for you, as well as it is reversible. You know, we know that like I said, we use them as young as two years old. We know that we can have patients on this. They will catch up as far as their bone mineral density as that is the main concern we see as far as long-term use goes is that bone mineral density. There's been studies that prove they catch right back up within a year or two. So we're not losing anything there. So, and then, like I said, as far as the dosing goes with the hormones, it's typically just going to be that lower end of the adult dosing there. So can you tell me more about therapeutic considerations for ambulatory care pharmacists who may not be prescribing these therapies, but may encounter gender affirming therapy in their practice? For sure. So the big one, when I saw this was one of the questions, the big one was just like, oh, Spiro, which is red alerts right there. Um, you know, it's since it's renally eliminated and it, potassium spares, you know, that's going to be our main one that we're looking for when it comes to drug interactions. Um, as far as uh, testosterone goes, easy peasy, nothing really to be concerned about there. Where it can get kind of tricky is with estrogen. We do know that can cause some interactions, including like they specifically did a, like I think it was a subpart of the clinical trial on PrEP. They specifically looked at how does estrogen impact this? And they did find that there was some reduced levels. So if we are looking at anything with a narrow therapeutic window that could be impacted by estrogen, we do want to pay extra close attention to those drug interactions. So if you are managing a patient on any other narrow therapeutic index drugs, that is really where it's going to come into key there. Um, I would say the other big area for Amcare pharmacists would be if you do anything um, with uh, warfarin, keeping an eye on the fact that we do know that uh, higher doses of estrogen can be associated with clot risk. 
It is not a contraindication. UCSF actually has an excellent flowchart on how to manage anticoagulation in patients who do have a, either a high clot risk or a history of clot risk that we don't have to take away their estrogen. We just have to manage it appropriately. So I definitely recommend if that is something you run into, checking out that resource there. Um, overall, though, when it comes down to it, it's not that much extra work as far as concerns for an AmCare pharmacist. It really is just going to be reviewing things like normal and then saying, okay, um, you know, you're starting testosterone, you have diabetes, this may impact your appetite some, so you may need to watch your, your sugars a little bit more. So it's going to be more about like, how do these other small factors maybe impact those other disease states less so than a, oh, this is going to be a straight up drug interaction that we have to be concerned with. Awesome. So what about inpatient pharmacists, Caleb? I will start this off by saying with a huge caveat of my expertise is not in inpatient pharmacy. I was a specialty pharmacist and now I just do community-based health consultant stuff. So if I got any of this wrong, I apologize in advance, but Think about, you know, if you're identifying things that come up as an inpatient pharmacist as concerns, this is definitely where you can use that community-based approach and try to consult with a local person in your area to say, ooh, hey, we're having this issue. What can we do to go about it? Um, but some of the things that I, you know, think about first of is that do we hold the doses or not? When patients come in, do we hold their hormone? Absolutely not, in my opinion. Um, I think about it like this of... If I were to go in and be on a blood pressure medication, you wouldn't hold that blood pressure medication unless there was a really good clinical reason to hold it, that it was going to cause me harm. So that is the same threshold of evidence that we should be requiring when it comes to holding hormones. Is there significant harm to be had if this patient continues taking it? Very rarely is that significance going to be reached. Since we would rarely ever stop hormone therapy based on something and not try to just adjust work around, like there's very few contraindications to hormone therapy, it should be the same scenario when patient gets to the hospital. We should rarely, rarely be taking away that drug. Additionally, think about the perspective of a patient who has been admitted. They don't want to be at the hospital, no matter what, I'm sure. And you say, ooh, hey, while you're here, you can't have your testosterone. That is immediately going to put that patient at incredibly higher anxiety levels, substantially distrustful of their healthcare team. So we really want to think about what is the perception of us holding this medication going to look like and how is that going to impact this patient's care? Because it's immediately going to drive up walls. It's going to immediately increase that anxiety. And you're going to start seeing your patients shut down and just try to avoid getting any additional care from you. And then... Statistically speaking, the trans community is going to have higher rates of uh, mood and personality disorders, and the studies have shown that these tend to actually be managed better while a patient is on their hormone therapy. So you could be doing significant harm by if a patient is admitted for a psych episode and they need that assistance. You could actually be doing harm by saying, oh, we're going to take away your medication. You're going to take away your hormones because you're destabilizing one of their mental health care medications. It is really important to think about hormones are not just hormones. They are mental health aids as well for a lot of us. Um, I know one of the questions uh, that was also referenced to me before was, you know, should this medication be included on formularies? I will say this as a, I'll just call myself a radical person. I in general, we'll own this. 100% hormones should be included on formularies, including transdermal options, even though they are more expensive. Again, it is that what is the perception and the damage potentially done by not having this medication on hand for this patient? And 
this is where my specialty pharmacy experience comes in is I hate the idea of using home medications for this because a testosterone being a controlled substance, if that gets lost during admission or discharge, that patient could be screwed on their end. They might not be able to get another refill. Additionally, they might not be able to afford to replace that medication that potentially gets lost. Like it's just, you know, we have to own that errors happen and things get lost. And by eliminating a potential error point, we're doing better by our patients. Um, so I am of the full opinion. Yes, some products should be added to formularies, you know, testosterone, tipine, easy peasy. That's pretty much the only injectable people are going to be on. And then, you know, one or two strengths of a transdermal product for testosterone, one or two strengths for a transdermal product for estrogen, getting estradiol tablets in there, like such an easy thing that can be added that helps reduce that burden on the patient, both the anxiety level, as well as another thing that they're going to have to deal with when they leave the hospital. Excellent. Thank you for that. So we've mentioned a couple of times in the first episode and in this one, talking about a gender affirming environment. So how can we create this type of environment for our patients? Yeah, so there are some really straightforward, easy things I think that every healthcare provider can do, not even just limited to pharmacists. Um, so the first thing is just making those very visible displays that your practice gets it. Um, and this is simple of having all staff wear pronoun pens is super easy. I know when I walk into a place and no matter what type of place it is, if I see someone wearing a pronoun pen, I'm like, okay, there's at least one person here that understands this gender is not just woman or man. So having that visible support, if you're in an area that you feel safe doing it, putting up pride flags, giving these visual cues that say you are safe here as well as some more of the functional things of on intake forms. If you have the ability to edit your intake forms or really like have any say in what happens on those intake forms, having places that specify legal name versus the name someone uses. Um, how can you note these things in your system? So I know there's pop-up notes within certain heart chart systems. There's, um, I know we call them sensitive notes. There's all these different ways, like how can we cue every individual staff member that's going to interact with this patient? How can we cue them to say, don't use this name, use this name and these pronouns, because that little bit goes such a long way in helping ease some of that discomfort there. Same thing goes with having a spot for legal sex versus gender. And this is actually really important from both just from like a insurance is the bane of all of our existence. Uh, this mismatch goes a long way to clear up a lot of things. So making sure that you have legal sex referenced or what insurance, what sex does your insurance have? Having that listed in some way so that way patients know, okay, I need to provide F for this, um, but I am a trans man on my actual gender part. So being able to line out, you know, what are these functional pieces of information and even perhaps explaining this is why we have to get this bit of information and then getting that social information from them as well. So that way we can treat them as the person they are and then have all that information that we need to do all the back-end work that comes with our jobs. Um, and I'm really glad that you actually talked about uh, your experience of having a resident come out mid-cycle, Sarah, because that is also one of those things that goes such a long way when it comes to creating an affirming environment for patients. If there's an affirming environment for staff members, that infirming environment for patients naturally begins to create itself. Because I know if, if you are there holding your colleagues accountable for misgendering one another, that means you're more likely to stand up for me if I get misgendered by one of your colleagues. So creating that environment that keeps your queer staff members feeling safe 
confident in their ability to stay out at work. That is going to only help create that environment for patients as well. Think about it less of you're not creating a gender affirming environment. You're creating a gender affirming culture in your space. And the other thing I've talked about with people before is if you can make it visible how patients can actually address complaints that they have, whether it's making it clear of like, oh, you had a problem. This is how you can go and talk to us about this problem. But also then saying, making it clear, this is how we remedy these situations. I know that if I were to have a poor experience at a physician's office or at a pharmacy and not know what happens with my complaint, I'm never really going to feel resolved from that discomfort, that pain, that quite possibly humiliating experience I've had. But if I were to be able to follow up with them and say, well, this is the, you know, they were able to tell me this is the process we did. This person was spoken to. They went through a training you know, these are the action steps we are taking, not necessarily having to get into that nitty gritty, but knowing that there is a a route of accountability that goes a long way for me as a patient, knowing that people are not perfect. It's not going to be right 100% of the time, but is the facility doing the efforts to be better every single time? I I can't, I can't echo it enough. Uh, To Kayla's points, if you can see yourself reflected back in the providers, I mean, just talking about it from like a patient perspective, there's a realm of, uh, I don't even want to say authority, but there's a certain status for healthcare professionals and highly professionalized roles. So when you see yourself reflected back, you're able to say like, okay, even though that there might be some educate or income disparities in the community, here are some successful individuals and here's a, a positive work environment for them. So I just wanted to kind of echo that in terms of what Caleb had mentioned. And then the other component too, is I think it's, it's, it's really important when you think about large health systems, being able to have those pathways for feedback and making it really easy. Um, I've worked with an individual who basically was in a, a very large health system uh, that has uh, an affirming concierge for uh, sexual and gender minorities to connect them to all of the different departments um, and, and really working to try to, within this health system, defragmatize care. And what was really interesting is that, you know, they did, they had great experiences when it came to uh, primary care, they had great experiences in these other realms. But when it came to the women's health clinic, there was a lot of uh, experiences that this person had had in terms of, you know, on their way to the bathroom to drop off their urine sample and a, a staff member like knocking on the door and this person's mask presenting and being like, hello, can I help you? (laughs) <laughs> and like, nothing more can make you feel un- un- uncomfortable in that space. Um, or, um, you know, going back for a follow-up. And even though this person had really great experience uh, with the surgeons that were providing, in this case, a hysterectomy, uh, the staff missed the mark in, in several different several different um, situations, one of which being in a very small waiting room in a clinic and that's uh, clearly for women's health without anything that says gender minorities, without anything that gives that person validation for being in that space to get treatment for the body that they have. And I think this is really important because um, in, in, in our research, we found that uh, 91% of our respondents in finding our strength had at least one point or another avoided healthcare unless absolutely necessary. So I think that's really important. And the worry of discrimination, the worry of this discomfort, already we have to confront the realities that we don't necessarily 
it doesn't feel good. Um, this isn't the way that we would want to do it if we could do it. Um, but at the end of the day, that type of care is really important because to not have, you know, if you have HPV and that can turn into, you know, um, CIN3 and cancer, I mean, this type of care is really important. So we want to minimize barriers, not add to them. Um, and this particular person had actually been sitting in the waiting room and was addressed miss several times being called to the back room. Um, and that is a very uncomfortable situation to be in when you're already, you know, not feeling very welcome or good in that space. Um, that's going to make people want to avoid even more. So I think that that's really important. And it hits on another component that even in a health system that can have very intentional, wonderful programs, that the saturation of that training doesn't always hit to all of the staff. It doesn't always hit to the, the front office. It doesn't always hit across the different departments. So without having personal insight in terms of, you know, how this health system goes about their training, um, you know, it's really hard to, to give details on like the root cause analysis of what went wrong there. But what I can speak to is that just something like, uh, you know, there's another health system, Howard Brown, and, you know, they have really good uh, gender affirming care here in the Chicago area, and they have plastered everywhere. This place is for you. We understand that you present in many different ways. And here's a place where you can go and share feedback. They're essentially lowering the barriers because it's a lot of emotional effort and work to go and go back to that office and say, hey, this happened. It didn't feel good. It made me like want to be anywhere but this room talking to about very important aspects of my care. Um, so I think that that's something that Caleb had mentioned, and I think it's incredibly important. Um, but there's some other components in our research that I think is it really highlights the importance of why gender-affirming environments are so important. Um, and, and first and foremost, I know we're all speaking to pharmacists here, uh, Transcend was co-founded. My co-founder was a, uh, a Black pharmacist, cisgender, heterosexual, so like not even like, like ally of the allies, right? Um, and so what he did is he just came to an LGBT center and he just listened. He just learned what people's experiences were and he learned about the medical information and it became that symbiotic relationship, which probably sounds familiar from part one. Uh, <laughs> we learned the model somewhere and it was from a pharmacist. So there's a lot of things that you can do as a pharmacist, because what I can tell you, I started as a client. Uh, the validation that I got from someone who just, who just, he accepted me. He accepted me regardless of secondary sex characteristics. He could, he was one of the first people who ever saw me. And that gift to be seen is so invaluable, especially when everywhere else you go in the world, they're making assumptions about you that just really grind against you. And even though, you know, he was a pharmacist who isn't necessarily providing care. He still had a very uh, pivotal role in many people's lives. Uh, Caleb had mentioned earlier, like you're, you're watching people blossom. It's the catalyst of them claiming the life for themselves. I mean, it's a really amazing aspect of care because you're not treating sickness. You're, you're treating uh, your treatment results in euphoria. It results in people claiming their life for themselves. Things that they may not have ever thought was possible is now possible. So I think that those are really important because not only like how do you create a gender affirming environment, but like saturation of those skills. And I'll be honest, like you got to start somewhere and you got to unlearn. And that's why 
turning to organizations that can help facilitate that process and make it a safe space to make mistakes. We all make make mistakes. It's about like as Caleb mentioned earlier, it's how do you how do you come back from that? That continual willingness to learn because that is what's going to drive better patient outcomes. Having a positive relationship with your provider means you're not going to avoid those yearly yearly examinations that are just incredibly dysphoric for you. So I think all of these are really important to, to mention. And one final thing that I wanted to, to leave folks with is that, uh, you know, Caleb mentioned earlier about the perceptions, the perceptions that folks have of healthcare providers. And we actually have some data on that. Um, so there's actually two components that I wanted to, do, to wanted to talk about. One, we asked people in our survey, uh, you know, how people cope around worry of discrimination in healthcare settings. So we're not talking about body discomfort. We're not talking about IDs mismatching. We're talking about how do you cope going into healthcare situations when you are worried about experiencing discrimination? 92% chose gender affirming providers. So, I mean, that makes sense, right? That's a really helpful coping strategy. Um, but then there's also 72% who saw information from non-clinical providers in terms of gender affirming treatments or what people should do at home. And, and, and there's a lot of information out there that is accurate and there's a lot that are not. So we want people sharing these questions with people who are medically trained and can help them make empowered decisions. 60% um, felt like they themselves as the patient had to educate providers on what their care needs are, what trans-related issues are. And then nearly 60% went into healthcare without even disclosing their identity. So you might not know the full picture of what this person's working with in terms of, you know, maybe they don't disclose that they're on testosterone. Maybe they don't disclose that they're on estrogen. And they, they've just found that it mentally would be easier for them to just let you make your assumptions and not tell you the full story. Those are the people who are also going to be avoiding care, right? They're the people who aren't going to be going and, and getting the care that they need. And then as far as the perceptions that that folks had, um, you know, when it comes to pharmacists, I could give the whole list, but I'll just keep it to, to pharmacists. 42% of our respondents worried some or a lot about interacting with pharmacists specifically uh, around experiencing worry about discrimination. So I thought that that was really important to mention. If we compare that to like transgender specialists, that was 12%. So signaling that you are gender affirming, making it a non-presumption non that you're wearing pronoun pins. Even as a cis person, that is so powerful because that tells me that you're not asking me to assume what your pronouns are, meaning you're not assuming mine. So I think that that's a really powerful, it's, it's really powerful. And what you're doing is you're, you're being another positive experience to repair from all of that minoritized stigma and stress that even though we've come so far as a community, we still have so much further to go. And there's a lot of, a lot of animosity out there. So that's why we're so appreciative to be able to have the opportunity to, to get on here and, and share, um, you know, about the work that we do and everything from that capacity, because th these are really important topics and everyone who's listening, like you have the opportunity to make a difference. So I think, that is a perfect place for us to wrap up. Um, that is exactly what we needed to hear, Braden and Caleb. So thank you so much for that. And thank you both again for joining us on Therapeutic Thursdays.
If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP section of Clinical Specialist and Scientist Connect Community, where you can exchange and post questions with your peers. Thank you again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays and join us here every Thursday where we will be talking to content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.